0: Well, this morning, we're going to continue our Pathways series, where we've been looking at um, how the the Bible points us to knowing God and to making Him known. And today, we're going to focus in somewhat on the Holy Spirit, and we'll do so next week as well. This week, the focus is on how the Holy Spirit enables us to walk in union with Jesus Christ and, and how to truly know who He is. And next week, we'll kind of follow up on what actually has happened with Steiger and show and examine how the Holy Spirit enables us to share with others how to make God known, how we can share our faith with great confidence, not in ourselves, but in the Holy Spirit. One One of the greatest comforts that I know about sharing our faith is that between what we say when we are humble and submitted to the Lord and what the other person hears is the Holy Spirit. And that's why we don't have to have every answer to every question. We don't have to have everything figured out for ourselves. We just need to rely on the Lord and be obedient to Him. Well, today, let me invite you to join with us in prayer because this is a very, very important topic. And and I want to make sure that I, I, I want the Lord to speak and for me to get out of the way. So would you bow your hearts and your heads with me? to Heavenly Father, Thank you for drawing us to yourself. Your word tells us that no one comes to you, no one comes to Jesus unless you, the Father, draws us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you convict us. You convict us of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. You do so to transform us and to draw us into the life that Jesus Christ purchased for us on the cross. Lord Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. God, thank you that each one of you reaches out to us. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, you're all involved in our salvation, and you're all involved in our relationship after faith, after coming to believe in Jesus, and helping us to know the greatness of who you are. So Lord, we ask that today you would speak. Lord, let me get out of the way. My ideas, my thoughts, let them be pushed aside. And help us to listen. Lord, where there are things that are confusing, bring clarity. Where there are things that are difficult, bring faith. And Lord, where there are areas where we need to to change, where we need to turn, give us the courage to be obedient. So Lord, we ask that you would fill us this moment with your presence. Let the Holy Spirit come through here and speak. Bring direction, bring understanding, bring hope, bring life. For Lord, we are desperate for you and we surrender ourselves to you and to your control in the mighty name that is above every name, in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. I don't know about you, but uh, it's been my experience as a pastor and my experience as a believer that oftentimes there seems to be a gap between what we say we believe and what we seem to experience. The source of that gap can come from a variety of different reasons. Sometimes what we're looking for in the experience is the wrong thing that we're looking for something about us rather than to come to know God and to be humble before him. Oftentimes, the gap begins with not understanding our union with Christ. That is so important. If we don't understand that Jesus came to unite us with him and bring us into the fellowship, the relationship of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, then all we have is religion and and rituals, and it will leave us empty. But when we understand what he is drawing us into, to that relationship and how that changes us, it transforms us, and it bridges that gap between what we say we believe and what we encounter with God himself. The second area that oftentimes is lacking that causes is a gap is understanding the filling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit seems mysterious to us. And and it's an area where there's a lot of different ideas and teaching, some of which are biblical and some of which are not. And so hopefully today we'll sort through some of those, not based upon my thoughts or my ideas, but based upon the scripture. The ultimate goal of this series, the Pathways to Knowing God and Making Him Known, is for us to walk with And walk like Jesus so that others may see our good works and give glory not to us, not recognition to us, but give glory to God and come to know him for themselves. In order for that to happen, for us to walk like Jesus, we first have to start focusing more and more on him and less and less on ourselves. The great words of John the Baptist where he said he must increase and I must decrease, that is the formula for every follower of Jesus Christ. More of him, less of me. And here's the thing, it sounds so counterintuitive, but when we begin to live more of him and less of me, there's more and more room for joy in your heart and your life. Because as you are emptied, as we, are, we pour out ourselves and say, Lord, it's all about you, he rushes in and fills us with his very presence and we experience life in a way that we never could in pursuing our own desires and wants. So to the beginning point is to turn the focus more and more on him and less and less on ourselves. Also, we need to learn to walk in grace and not motivated by guilt. Religion uses guilt. The enemy uses guilt, uses pressure. God uses grace to draw us to himself. Also, to walk united with Jesus, we should expect that we become more and more like him. Not like him in his power, in his greatness, in his deity. but More and more like him in his humility in his grace, in his love, in the way that he treated other people and listened to other people and where he went to the people who were broken and outcast, those that society had cast aside and even more sorrowfully, those that the temple, that religion had cast aside, he befriends. That's who we should become more and more like. Our behavior should reflect our true identity in him. We should reflect who Jesus is and his love. And to walk like Jesus, we must continually, therefore, be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus did. Jesus walked and worked in the power of the Holy Spirit, and so must we. So let me give you a foundation for us to begin as we're going to work towards understanding the Holy Spirit. We need to begin with a believer's reality. This is where you and I need to live. And it starts with this. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, these four things are true. Number one, Christ is in you. Colossians says that's the hope of glory. That when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, he comes to take up residency in us. He gives us the Holy Spirit as a, de- as a deposit, as a guarantee. But that is a reality we have to trust. He is in us. But there's another reality that we have to embrace as well, that you are in Christ who is your life. The book of Colossians in chapter 3 states it that way. It says, Christ who is your life. You're already united with him. Our position, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, when we trust him as Savior and choose to follow him as Lord, our position in him is absolutely secure. As we looked at last week, Jesus' words were, where he was saying, No one can snatch you out of my Father's hand. You are secure. So Christ is in me, and you are in Christ. Those two realities. Now, the same thing, the same truths that have two different dynamics to them, is true about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells in every believer. Romans chapter 8, verse 9, assures us that everyone who trusts in Christ has the Holy Spirit. There are no second-class children of God. None. Every one of them does. If your faith is real, you have the Holy Spirit. Secondly, okay, the Holy Spirit dwells in us, but then we need to see ourselves as, according to 1 Corinthians 6, we need to see ourselves as the temple. The dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Here's what it says in that passage: First Corinthians chapter six, verses nineteen through twenty. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own; you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We need to hold on to both of those realities. That. Christ is in us that we are in Christ that the Holy Spirit dwells in us and that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit because that changes how we live that changes the reality of everything that we face it certainly changes according to this passage where he tells us to glorify God with our body it changes how we see ourselves our body The world would say our body has its worth, has its value based upon how you look, how athletic you are, how beautiful you are, all those kind of false things. God says, you are the chosen place, the chosen temple in which I want to dwell. Now, you need to think about that for just a second. Um, Chances are I won't get halfway through my message today because I might get excited. So uh, we'll, we'll see. On earth, what was the most beautiful building ever made? It was the temple. God gave the requirements, the design specifically about a place where His Holy Spirit would dwell, and He made it beautiful. He made it the center point of Israel so that everyone came to that. Now, here's the the connection that we need to make. We want to be a temple that is beautiful for the dwelling place of God. He has chosen you, and so you're already the place He wants to be. He wants to dwell. He wants to abide. Now we are to allow Him to transform us into a place that is filled with beauty, which He feels welcome. That's our calling. When it comes to understanding the Holy Spirit, Martin Lloyd-Jones put it so well. He says this, generally speaking, the position today is that the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is either neglected or it tends to be emphasized and exaggerated in a false manner. I have no doubt at all that the second is partly the cause of the first, The doctrine of the Holy Spirit is neglected because people are so afraid of the spurious, the false, and the exaggerated that they avoid it all together. He wrote that a long time ago, and it's still true today. We get nervous about it because we see places where there is error. But we need to approach this with the understanding God wants to fill you. His design for your life, for my life, is to fill us with the Holy Spirit. And so we want to walk carefully and biblically through that. Jesus said that it is to our advantage that he go away. That's what he tells us in in John, in John chapter 14, 15, and 16. Repeatedly, he's telling the disciples and he's telling us that it's better if I go away because then the Holy Spirit will come and dwell in you. And here, Andrew Murray puts this so well. He takes that portion of Scripture that Jesus says, and he puts it this way. In the course of the Lord's dealings with his disciples on earth, he spared no pains to teach and to train them or to renew and sanctify them. In most respects, however, they remained just what they were. The reason was that up to this point, he was still an external Christ, who stood outside of them and from the outside sought to work on them by his word and his personal influence. But when the, with the coming of Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, this condition was entirely changed in the Holy Spirit. He came down as the indwelling Christ to become the life of their lives. That's why we need the Holy Spirit, is to have the life, the abundant life, that Jesus offers us and to be able to accomplish the things he calls us to do. So to neglect the Holy Spirit is to neglect the promise of Jesus, the presence of God in our life and the only power by which we may truly live for him and accomplish all that he calls us to do. The Holy Spirit is absolutely essential in the life of every believer. Now within the church, there are, there are faithful brothers and sisters who have different interpretations about some of the gifts and how they are used and how they are manifest. Within our congregation, we have a variety of people who would take different positions on those. For the most part, that's not terribly important. What's most important is that we understand that we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit and that every believer has been given spiritual gifts to be used for the glory of God and the building up of the body of Christ. That's where we have great unity and connection. We may disagree about how some of them are utilized, but we all need them. We need the Holy Spirit because he is our advocate. And he is the one that teaches us the word. This is what Jesus said, that he would guide us into all truth, truth about him. That's his main purpose. If if we were to, to see Jesus' job description for the Holy Spirit, it was to teach us about him. Here's how he says it in John chapter 16, verse 12. Jesus said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but what he hears he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. I I shared this with you last week, but I want to repeat it. The Holy Spirit sometimes seems mysterious because he never draws attention to himself. In fact, that's a clue to understanding whether or not it really is the Holy Spirit we're being filled with. If he's drawing attention to an act, if if the attention is being drawn to me, If the the credit is being placed upon the person, we need to be careful as to whether or not that really is the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit always, always, always glorifies Jesus, He always points us to Him. So before we examine the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and begin to to see the richness that's there in, in what is portrayed in the Scripture, there's some warnings that we have in the Bible concerning the Holy Spirit that are there to help us be able to, to understand who He is, how He works in our life, and to safeguard us as individual believers and as the church about this very important area of belief. The first warning is this, and these are not in a, in a particular order. But these come from the Scripture. The first warning is to to not grieve the Holy Spirit by causing division through unforgiveness, through foolish talk and controversies, or through anger. The Holy Spirit is the one that transforms us both individually and as a body. But if we act selfishly or self-centeredly, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. These words that are written here in Ephesians are words where Paul, as he's writing, is reaching out with a pastoral heart to his people saying, be careful. Here's what he says. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. So he's saying the first thing we need to focus in on, if we want to make sure we don't grieve the Holy Spirit, we need to make sure that what we're doing, the actions that we take are building up other believers, not pushing them away, not causing offenses and hurts and and wounds in their life. Because if we do, we're going to grieve the Holy Spirit. That's what he says. But only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, which means just uh, like gossip and, and chattering about other people, putting them down. Let all slander be put away from you along with all malice. Malice means that we have almost an Ill intent, Ill intent towards someone else. But what is it that affirms the Holy Spirit. The next verse tells us, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. One of the things that's so important when we read that, and I wanted you to see it in context, because oftentimes we just, we just pull a verse out and, and we assume that it means something else because we've just pulled that verse out. We grieve the Holy Spirit at least in this context, by a relationship with one another when it is broken. Do you see that? When we think about grieving the Holy Spirit, we think of immorality grieves the Holy Spirit, and and chances are it does. But that is not the context that's said here. It is within the relationship of the body of Christ that the Holy Spirit is grieved when there is brokenness, when uh, there are individuals uh, who are causing hurt and division. And here's why that's so important. The Holy Spirit is a person who indwells every follower of Jesus. We grieve him through sin and through broken relationships and offenses with others because that person belongs to him. They are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is why all through the scripture, we see that the mark that proves we are Jesus' disciples is our unity and our love for one another because we're bound together in Christ and, each, and we see the value in each person. That is so important. It's so important that we look at others and we see them as God sees them, with his pursuit for them. So the first warning is not to grieve the Holy Spirit. The second warning occurs early on in the church. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Acts. I'm going to give a a verse from 1 John first, but you can turn to the book of Acts. And here's, here's the warning. Seeking power or position for ourselves can grieve the Holy Spirit and lead to judgment. Remember, the Holy Spirit always points not to himself, but to Jesus. Therefore, our desire for being filled with the Holy Spirit is so that we can reflect Jesus well. Not about position, not about power, not about authority, but about Jesus. If a person sees the filling of the Holy Spirit as a way to gain power or secret knowledge or to become a higher class of believers, they are in great danger of grieving the Holy Spirit and spreading false teaching because that is not what the Scripture tells us. In fact, The scripture warns us in 1 John, it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, let's look at Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, uh, there is a group uh, of believers. The disciples go to this group of believers. And in the city, there is a man named Simon who is a magician, And Simon, after he had trusted in Jesus, was deceived by Satan and sought power and position rather than to humble himself before God. It's a sobering passage of scripture, but there's really, really good news. The really good news is that Simon recognized his error and he repented and he turned and humbled himself before the Lord. Let's look what it says. Acts chapter 8, verses 17 through 25. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on the, of the hands of the apostles, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. See, money wasn't the biggest issue that Simon had. His desire for power, for recognition, for position was the heart issue that caused him to seek to buy this recognition. Here's what Peter says. He says, repent therefore of this weakness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that, there, that you are in the gall of bitterness and a bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. I love Simon's response because when he recognizes his error it proves that he really is a follower of Jesus Christ he humbles himself to the point of saying man i need you to pray for me because i realize i've messed up so bad my heart was in the wrong place i was seeking the wrong thing when it came to the holy spirit and he humbled himself in a similar way just 2 chapters earlier we see a warning that seeking status and influence rather than service grieves the Holy Spirit. If you back up in your Bibles to chapter, excuse me, chapter 5, we see the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and his wife Sapphira were jealous of how other people viewed Barnabas. Barnabas was a follower of Jesus Christ and his nickname was the Son of Encouragement. Because everywhere he went, he brought joy and encouragement and refreshment to people. And we discover in the scriptures that that Barnabas, simply based on seeing the needs around him and the prompting of the Holy Spirit, he took something that he had. He had a piece of property, um, and, and the indication is it was a rather large piece of property. He sold that, and he gave all the money to the church and said, use it however you want. That's just the heart of who he was. But as a result, people were talking about Barnabas. They were saying good things about Barnabas. And Ananias and Sapphira saw the recognition that Barnabas was getting. And so they hatched a plan in their minds that they would do something similar, but it was with a totally wrong motive. They sold a piece of property, but they chose to hold back part of the money to keep it for themselves, which was absolutely their right, but they told everyone else that they had given it all. They wanted to be seen as spiritual like Barnabas. Here's what it says. Acts chapter five, verses three through six. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Did you see that? It wasn't about lying to the people in the church. He was lying to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. This is why this is a sobering passage of Scripture is we need to recognize that the very first characterization of the Holy Spirit is that he is holy. We must approach him with reverence, with recognition that in and of ourselves we have nothing to bring. He is perfect and pure. And we need to treat him so. You cannot deceive the Holy Spirit. He knows all truth. He knows everything about you, everything about me. Therefore, we must humble ourselves. That's the lesson that we have there. That's the warning. The next warning that we have is, is a warning because oftentimes when we think about the Holy Spirit, we automatically merge that with the gifts. And the gifts certainly come from the Holy Spirit and they're incredibly important. But they're not one and the same. They have a purpose and a use within the church. But if we seek a gift or an experience rather than the giver, the giver of gifts, God himself, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. There there are some, especially during this season, where um, one of the benefits of of COVID and the isolation, is people started seeking and checking out other, other teachings and other, other preachers, and I'm sure you found many of them that are a whole lot better than me. There's a lot of good stuff out there. And there's also a lot of not so good stuff out there. And one of the things that often is, is taught in certain circles, that in order to be evidence that you have the Holy Spirit, you have to have a specific gift. But that's not biblical. And I wanna show it to you here from God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse four, actually deals with this exact topic. Because in the church at Corinth, there was division happening, and Paul is rebuking the believers at Corinth because they have categorized themselves in different ways. So you had... Believers who were up here, who really had it together, who were spiritual, and then you had other believers who were down here, who felt inadequate or pressured because they didn't have the same thing that this group of believers up here did. And there was conflict in the church, and it was breaking the church apart. And so he writes these words. He says in verse 4, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in every one. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. He's not saying to each person is given the same gift. He's saying to each person is given a portion of the Holy Spirit and the gifts that he brings, whatever he has chosen, whatever he has designed for each person to be used to build up the body of Christ. That's the purpose of the gifts. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. And to another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. And to another, faith by the same Spirit. To others, gifts of healings by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish or discern between Spirits. And to another, various kinds of tongues. To another, interpretations of tongues. All these are empowered by the one and same Spirit who apportions to each one individually As he wills. And in the scripture we have many different listings of gifts that the Holy Spirit gives. The gift of faith, the gift of encouragement, the gift of teaching, the gift of service, the gift of helps. All of those come from the same Holy Spirit. And every believer has been given spiritual gifts that he has personally chosen for you. For building up the body. There are no higher class, lower class children of God. None. If that's what's being taught or if that's what's being put, because what happens oftentimes is people have heard these teachings and then they, they feel that this is the right way, and so they pressure other people. I, I, Becky was talking to me about her dad. Um, I never met her dad. He died before, before we met. Her dad, though, everything I've learned about him, he was an incredibly godly man. But in the group that they were in, um, it was a very, very beautiful, very charismatic group, but he was always feeling pressured to speak in tongues. And and he he would pray, and he would ask that the Lord would give him this gift, and the Lord never did. And yet in that group, he felt like there was something missing, not because of his relationship with God, but because other people were telling him, oh, you're supposed to have this. But it wasn't what God's design was for him. God chooses gifts for each person for his purposes, and we must value one another equally. Otherwise, we are working against the Holy Spirit. Now, I believe very firmly, personally, I believe very firmly in the gift of tongues. I believe it's still active and it's used. I've seen it especially in places where there's very little access to uh, to God's word. I've seen it used in beautiful, wonderful ways. But it's not a gift that shows that a person is filled with the Holy Spirit. That is not what the Scripture teaches. And to elevate it, because it is a gift that actually is one that encourages the individual and doesn't necessarily build up the body. That's what he goes on to say later on in chapter 12. If there's any gift that is to be sought after more diligently, it is the gift of love. Love. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is all about. The very next chapter is talking about the gift of love, that that's the one we're to seek because that is what builds up the body of Christ over everything else. Okay, all right, sorry. Those are the warnings. Sorry. Dang. Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. Let's look at the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's so cool. All right, Acts chapter two. Now, this is exactly the phrase that people will will counter what I just said that came out of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. They'll say, see, they spoke in tongues. Absolutely. At Pentecost, they spoke in tongues. But let's make some distinction, first of all. The tongues that they spoke here in this passage were all known tongues, It was not a supernatural language. It was not the language of angels. I can prove that to you because the very next verses say it very clearly. When the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, the believers spoke miraculously in known tongues so that the nations gathered in Jerusalem understood what they were saying. Acts chapter 2, the very next verse, verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and this sound... And at this sound, the sound of the mighty rushing wind, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Aelia, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them speaking in our own tongues. And here's here's the phrase. If you're gonna write down something, if you want the evidence of the Holy Spirit, this is it. Speaking the mighty works of God. That's the evidence. Not the language. But that we're speaking the mighty evidence the mighty works of God, proclaiming his mighty works of God and the fruit of the Spirit are the evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't require speaking in a foreign tongue or in a heavenly tongue, not that they don't exist, because I do believe they are and they're active, and God uses them in beautiful ways to reach people. I have seen people gifted with the gift of languages to be able to connect and share the gospel in multiple circumstances, and it's incredible. But every other passage in the New Testament that talks about the filling of the Holy Spirit, every other one affirms they proclaim the the mighty works of God, but every other one of them, it is done so in their regular language. I have a list of scriptures I'm going to put on the screen right there. Acts 4, verse 8, Acts 4, 31, Acts 9, 17, Acts 13, 9, Ephesians 5, 8 all tell us they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they proclaimed the mighty works of God, but they all did it in, the, in, most, in this case in Aramaic. So you can't equate one with the other because the, the scripture doesn't support it. They're different. Now, with Pentecost, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, incredible things happen. And I'm gonna run out of time, so I'm gonna just tell you just a little bit about Pentecost and then we're gonna wrap up and we'll, we'll pick up the really good stuff next week. Okay, Pentecost means first fruits. It's a Greek word that literally, its literal translation is 50 days, okay? Um, And when this event happens, when the Holy Spirit comes, it has been 50 days since the Passover that Jesus celebrated with his disciples what we call the Last Supper. It has been 10 days since Jesus ascended into heaven. Pentecost always occurs exactly 50 days after Passover every year. This is a regular feast in the, in the Jewish calendar, okay? And it points back, its Hebrew word is the word Shavat, which um, is, is its, the Hebrew name for Pentecost, and it's the festival of first fruits with the promise of more to come. It's the very initial harvest, Um, And in this case, what God is demonstrating is it's the very first initial harvest of grace because what happened at this Pentecost? 3,000 people came to trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord from all the nations of the earth. It was the first taste of this harvest of grace and it was absolutely incredible. But there is a Pentecost in the Old Testament the first one that was celebrated after the very first Passover was radically different. You see, the first one points to the old covenant. This Pentecost points to the new covenant, a covenant of grace in Jesus Christ. And there are great parallels between the old covenant and the giving of the law and the new covenant of grace through faith in Jesus Christ that brings forgiveness and relationship with God. The law shows us how incapable we are of being perfect. None of us are sinless. None of us measure up. Not a one. The grace of Jesus Christ tells us, however, that he was perfect for us and chose to take on our sin and pay the penalty of our sin on the cross. He's the only person ever to be sinless. He's the only person who will be sinless because it is reserved for him alone. Now, when Jesus Christ returns and we're given a resurrected body, then we enter into his presence and we won't struggle with sin in the way that we struggle with it now. But the scripture tells us that that's a reality you and I will face because we're still human throughout the rest of our days. 1 John says it this way. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, this is the great news. He is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Those are really sobering words. He tells us there's only two options. If, here's what happened. So many of the, the religious leaders in Jesus' day, the Pharisees, they saw themselves as above everyone else and basically sinless. That's what cult leaders do as well. They see themselves with that achievement on their own. But God in his word says there's only two options. Either they are deceived or God is a liar. That's the only two options that John gives us. I'm pretty sure I know which one is true. God is not a liar. He has told us this is a struggle we face. But the great news is is that Jesus Christ came and gives us forgiveness and transformation and it is absolutely beautiful. So what about Pentecost? Why don't I wrap up? Here's in fact, well, let me, let me put this, this point from Martin Lloyd-Jones because it's so spot on. Um, it's my belief, first of all, that if, as a follower of Jesus Christ, as we mature, we become more and more aware of our own sinfulness, our own failure. And it prevents us from becoming judgmental because we see within our own sin, both what we have done and the potential of what we could do without the grace of God. Martin Lone Jones puts it this way. He says, the nearer a man or woman gets to God, the greater he sees his sin. There's a humility that comes. All right, so the work of the Holy, of the Holy Spirit. Here's what happened at Pentecost. I'm gonna put a chart up on the screen to give you a comparison because the first Pentecost happened... Again, 50 days after the Passover. This is the Passover when the Passover lamb was, 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 um, was killed and the blood was painted over the doorposts and the lintel of the house and everyone who was underneath the blood, everyone who was, who was protected, was spared from the angel of death from judgment in, uh, as the Israel was being delivered from their slavery in Egypt. Okay, that was the Passover meal. That was the Passover lamb. And 50 days after that, an event happened in the wilderness, which was the giving of the law. 50 days later, on Pentecost, the, the feast that became known as Firstfruits, the Ten Commandments were written on the tablets, and God came down, or excuse me, Moses came down from the mountain and gave God's law to humanity. The purpose of the law was given to show us God's holiness and character. That's the purpose of the first Pentecost. The second Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was given to God's people, to all believers as a deposit or a first fruit of our intimate relationship with God so that he could begin to develop his character in us. The law at the first Pentecost was also given to show man and woman's sinfulness and inability to be perfect. When we look at the law, none of us measure up. We all fall short. I certainly fall incredibly short. And Jesus expands on that because it's not just the deeds that we do, it's the thoughts that we think. At the second Pentecost, the new covenant of grace, the Holy Spirit enables us to abide in and live the Christ life as he produces it in us and through us as we abide in him. Here's what happened at the first Pentecost. Because you remember when Moses came down and brought the law, what had the people of Israel been doing? They made an idol. Because it had seemed like Moses was gone for forever, they're up on the mountain, they didn't know what was happening. They went back to what their natural way was and they took all the gold that they had and they melted it down and they formed a golden calf they ironically called Yahweh, and they bowed before an idol. False worship, just 50 days after being miraculously delivered, all the plagues of Israel, seeing the incredible witness of God's power and greatness, in just a short period of time, they rebelled. That shows you the condition of our heart, and so when Moses came down and he saw what was happening and God saw what was happening, God was angered at the rebellion of his people. And the scripture tells us that on that day, 3,000 people died according to Exodus 32, 28 because of their rebellion. But what happened at the second Pentecost? Acts chapter two, verse 41 tells us that 3,000 people were saved. They came to eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful redemption of what man had broken. God fixes. It's an incredible picture. Pentecost in the Old Testament marked the birth of the nation of Israel. Pentecost in the New Testament marked the birth of the church, the body of Christ. Pentecost in the Old Testament is that the law brought death. But Pentecost in the New Testament is that the Spirit brings life. And God moves from symbols to substance, from rituals to a relationship. That's why 2 Corinthians 3 says, And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. A transformation has happened. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in and of ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, not of the law, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills or brings death, but the Spirit gives life. God, through Jesus Christ, through this next Pentecost, and through giving of the Holy Spirit to dwell in every believer, was taken what was broken in the covenant uh, between Israel and God, and he fixes it. And it's beautiful, because that is what only God can do. Ultimately, when we come to understanding of the Holy Spirit, and this is where I'm gonna end, the most important thing that we have to come to realize is that the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, is a matter of control. Ephesians tells us, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, and what that means is wine is something that takes control over us, over our attitudes, over our personalities, over what we do. And we have too much of it. But when we submit to the Holy Spirit and say, Lord, have your way in me. Your will be done, not my will be done. Jesus must increase. I must decrease. Fill me with the Holy Spirit so that Jesus may be glorified. Then he comes, he takes control, and he does his work, his will, and he accomplishes incredible things. If we will truly believe that, you will see God do amazing things in you, in people around you, in the church, when we're praying for and submitting to the Lord and say, Lord, would you fill us with the Holy Spirit? us as a church with the Holy Spirit because we want to see the people of Prague, the people in our family, the people in our workplace. We want to see them discover who Jesus Christ is and know him themselves personally. In the first covenant, God chose a nation, Israel. In the second covenant, God chose his children, every person, every believer who would put their trust in Jesus Christ and he says, I'm gonna fill you with my presence. We'll look next week to see what that means a little more in depth. Generally, Father, Lord, I, I know I, I didn't communicate the way I wanted to. I pray you would take the brokenness and you would fix it. Well, we need you. Well, we need to understand truth. I need to be guided and corrected and, and shown truth. Lord, so that I can live out the life you call us to. So Lord, would you speak to each and every one of us here? where there areas where our understanding has been confused or misaligned with your word? Would you correct us? And then Lord, also would you give us the boldness to ask for the filling of the Holy Spirit? And the belief to trust that that really is your plan and your purpose for your life. And that, and that, Lord, the things that you have done through believers throughout the ages and through the early church, you are still doing through your people when we humble ourselves and seek to honor you and allow you to fill our life with your presence, with your purpose, with your plan. But, Lord, guide us by this one principle. You have shown us in your word that the work of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus. May that become the single purpose of our life, to lift up the name of Jesus because his name is beautiful. In his great name we pray. Amen.